Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. This is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. While we have technically ended this amazing season with the theme of strengthening churches for renewal and growth, I am pleased to provide to you this bonus live Q&A this final bonus episode with church leaders that explores why strengthening churches for renewal and growth depends upon legal, financial, and tax-related fundamentals. This bonus episode of the Church Law Podcast was recorded actually at the 16th Annual Church Compliance Conference held outside of Washington, D.C. It was the 16th annual event held in September of 2023. And I hope that you'll enjoy listening to this and getting these amazing questions from the audience. This is a hybrid event. So we had some questions from the audience in person and some questions from online. And Matthew Branagh, who is the attorney and editor from Church Law and Tax, is with me as we tackle these questions. They include areas around tax implications of renting church property, community development corporations, steps to ensure church compliance with various laws and regulations, and just some really great questions that came to us from the audience. So take a listen and enjoy. So the question that we received, I'll just repeat this just in case the people online, we have a question from an online attendee regarding any tax or other considerations around churches renting their property. So Matt, do you want to start with that? I can, yeah. So the short answer is there are tax considerations that come into play. And when you're a tax-exempt organization, you are not a for-profit entity. And so uh, the IRS pays attention to where you get your revenue. And if it becomes what they would consider a substantial part of your operations, they start to become increasingly concerned with that. So there are things called unrelated business income taxes. If you go past a certain amount in your revenue from these kinds of activities that are outside of what we would consider your normal church operations, you do need to follow those rules, file those forms. I don't have the specific technical forms down uh, off the top of my head, but uh, just know that they are a part of the picture when it comes to generating revenue outside of what we would consider your normal tithes and offerings. That's really good. I'll add just a couple of other quick points there. First of all, if you are going to be responsible for paying unrelated business income tax, that's not the boogeyman. Like UBIT is not the boogeyman. It just means that it's a taxable event. There have been times that I've worked with churches and they have gone into it making the decision 
we're going to take this great opportunity that we have. And we know that this income is taxable, but we're willing to pay the taxes in order to gain the revenue. So I would just say, make sure that you go through that consideration. And if it is a taxable event, work with a proper tax advisor regarding that. The second thing I would say is, please have a lease. When I say a lease, I mean a written lease, right? It's sort of like people who say they have a budget. It's like, I got a budget. Where is it? Right? (laughs) So we can't just like move the line every time. We need to have a written document that outlines exactly what the requirements are. And I would also just shoot this in here real quick. When you are opening your facility up for use, then there are these other considerations that you heard Rich talk about from a legal standpoint. So the kinds of quote unquote protections or exemptions that churches may have and leaders may have that exist because the church is accepted with like with an E, E X accepted, right? From having to honor certain laws that may be contrary to your church's beliefs, those things don't translate to your property. So you've got to be able to have a document that makes that connection. So those are some additional considerations that you may not have thought of when leasing out your property. I want to ask one of the questions that was raised to me, and then I see that we have a question. Well, why don't I take your question, then I'll read this one. So Pastor Tara. So just as a follow-up, if you could just say more, I know in some places I've seen language where if a church is allowing outsiders or even folks in the church before a non-church function to use it, they'll say, we're not charging you, but we'll accept a donation. And so I was wondering if you could speak to like, does the IRS like, "Uh uh-huh, no, that's income. (laughs) And then unrelated to that, I was wondering at some point, maybe Mr. Hammer, when he's able to join us, if you could talk about what is the proper relationship? How do you set up a proper relationship between the church and a CDC that the church might want to start? Because I'm I'm very confused. I'm not clear on all of the firewalls that need to be between the church and the CDC so that they're operating as two different entities, but the church still wants to have some influence. I'm trying to figure out like, what is the connection? And that may be a larger question than just a 30 second answer. But even if you could point me to some resources, I'd love to learn a little bit more about that. I'll start with just the question as far as donations for use of the property. And and yes, the IRS is still going to look at that at some point and say that looks more like revenue than just a donation, especially if it goes on on a widespread basis. If it's going on in a larger way, if it's recurring and continual, that's going to become more and more problematic in the eyes of the IRS. Or or I shouldn't say problematic. It's just going to become more subjected to what Rico was describing as far as whether that's subjected to unrelated business income tax. And I just want to point out there is so much brilliance in the room, including um, I just want to point to Cynthia there, who is an accountant who works specifically with churches. So if you swivel around Pastor Tara, I would make a point to chat with her as well. So yes, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? That's a very deep legal answer. (laughs) But really, I've been in plenty of places where people want to call. They're like, he's not getting a salary. It's an honorarium. It's not really payment. It's a love offering. So, you know, we, we, I think we want to come to this with a place of honesty and intentionality. Um, So, and it's okay. If we want to rent out the space, we can just acknowledge that and have a clear plan in action. Secondly, the question around CDC and churches creating separate entities. First of all, I really applaud that work. I've worked with lots of churches that have other kinds of entities. 
So whether it's a church that has a school or a church that has a daycare center or a church that has a CDC or it has a specific outreach arm, all of those are laudable things. Again, if it's in purpose and in keeping with the vision of your church, you utilize a term that I reference a lot, and that is making sure that you have the proper legal firewalls. So if, and we say that, number one, for legal protections, right? So God forbid there's an issue that happens with the CDC, then you don't want, theoretically, for the church to also be a plausible litigant if there's an issue. So it is important to have a legal firewall between them and any other kinds of entities that the church may operate. But there's a delicate balance because if the church creates the CDC, most of the time in my experience, the church also wants to have an element of control over what it creates. So that can be a very delicate balance between the level of control that the church may want to desire to have, but also wanting to make sure that there's a clear distinction. I will say that in one of the recent podcast episodes, I address this issue And I think it was in our last Q&A. And so actually, this is going to be a bonus episode I think I'll share with people in the upcoming Church Law Podcast. But it was a question that was raised in the last Q&A that we did that was probably about a year ago. So I would recommend that as a resource as well. One of the questions that I received is, how can a church know whether it's operating in compliance? I thought it was brilliant because this is called the Church Compliance Conference. So the question was, how can a church know whether it's operating in compliance? And so maybe I'll start with that. And Matt, if you want to add anything as well. So in all fairness, there are a lot of compliance areas, right? We've heard some of them today. And so, of course, we're looking at the various levels. There's compliance on the federal side. And generally speaking, when we're referencing the federal side, we're considering the Internal Revenue Service and its requirements. And then there are obviously requirements on the state side, which we reference in the law as statutory. So statutory requirements. Every state has laws in how the church is formed. Some states may call it a non-stop corporation. Some states call it a religious corporation. Some states call it a nonprofit corporation or whatever the state reference may be, there's laws about how you create it, how it needs to be maintained in dissolution, the entire life cycle of the operation of a church. And likewise, there are local laws, right? This is an area that we get into when we talk about property issues. So Majette Parker is here and he does a lot of issues, maintains a lot of issues with RELUPA and other real estate matters. So that is often local, local down to like where the the jurisdiction, where the church property is located. So when we talk about compliance, it includes all of those areas. And I recognize that that's not easy to necessarily maintain. But I think knowing the compliance requirements, as well as making sure that you have those regular kinds of updates, that you avail yourselves to information like what has been shared. Obviously, I think this conference is a very useful tool, as well as each of the guests have been able to share information with you. So whether that's ECFA's website, churchlawandtax.com, other writings from Richard Hammer, which I would recommend. I will also say, I will share more about this, but I created a proprietary process that I feel very strongly about, which is specifically, it's the church attorney legal audit system. 
It's a four-step process that walks you through the areas of compliance. And if you've never had a legal compliance audit, I think that's really a key area. And I would really encourage that. We'll share a little bit more. I'll just add that out of the policies and procedures VIP session that we were a part of, one of the things that came up was just taking sort of like an inventory of all the different areas that your church needs to think through as far as its policies and procedures. So governance issues, where's your articles of incorporation, your bylaws, are you reviewing those regularly? And then building and facility use, insurance, employment and HR, and on down the line. If you just kind of find some of the main categories and then start listing out what are some of the things that we should be checking up on on a periodic basis, I think that's really important. I think what Arika is describing is external compliance. And then there's also this element of like internal compliance. What are we doing as far as the rules that we've set for ourselves, and how well are we following those things? I think Arika has said this on a number of occasions. One of the worst things that can happen is to set a policy or have a handbook that you never look at or you never follow. Because if you ever have something go wrong and you face some kind of lawsuit down the road, that information becomes evidence against you as far as what you didn't follow that you were supposed to follow. So it's a matter of making sure that you're complying with yourself in as much as you're complying with things that are external to the church. So it looks like we have some questions in person. Samantha, I'm going to let Pastor Mark go for it. Thank you. And thank you for your excellent work uh, for Reed Temple. You have solved so many complicated issues. I just want people to give God praise for what you do. Come on, give God praise. Oh, that's so fine. Thank you. I'm not sure how to answer, how to pose the question. If you have a nonprofit and it was developed, it was established to raise money, but has never raised money and has only received money from the church. It was established to raise money, but it's only received money from the church. And now those who maintain the nonprofit have this expectation that the church must continue to give them money. And you know that in this post-COVID environment, you really need to manage your money better. How do you deal with that? I mean, I mean, because it is perplexing because the money given is good for ministry, but the nonprofit has never went out to a foundation government wealthy donor to raise money on its own. It's always been dependent on the tithes and offering, and yet they are 501c3 recognized by the state of Maryland. Yeah. Well, you see a lot of heads nodding in the room. Um, Matt, I'll let you go for it and then I'll follow up. One thing that comes to mind immediately comes out of a book we have uh, called Church Finance by a CPA named Michael Batts, who's just a really gifted communicator in the area of finances and budgeting. And his response, I think, in the situation would be, it starts with the church's vision. What is the church called to do? What is its mission? as it relates to that vision. And so in this instance, it would seem like you would want to look at this nonprofit and say, how does this fit with the church's vision? Does it still fit? Does it make sense? Does it have a place that we should be still providing funds toward for the purposes that it's set forth in connection with the church's vision and mission? If it is, then maybe that's still reason to say we need to find a way to help get that nonprofit moving in the direction it's supposed to go. If it's not, then that's a place to revisit and say, maybe this is time for a new direction. Thank you. I really appreciate that answer. I don't know that I have a whole lot to add, but I will. So what I would say is it's consistent with the tail end of what Matt offered, which is change. 
people, uh, this has been a theme of our conference today. Sometimes people aren't comfortable with change, but change is a reality of life. We are here literally at the cusp of the end of summer moving into fall. Like it's changed. The seasons change. God really established for us a pattern of change. We're born and then we live and then we die. Right There's always this cycle of life. And the reality is that sometimes what was created five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago is not necessarily what we need today. No one could have predicted, I don't know, maybe there were some people, actually, I was about to say that, I think some people did predict a pandemic, but I certainly wasn't living my life thinking there's probably going to be a pandemic coming up, so let me make sure I have toilet paper. Just kidding. (laughs) But there are things that happen in life that are unpredictable. And we have to adjust to the season that we're in. We have to adjust to the financial patterns that we're in. We have to adjust to the mission that God is calling us to at that time, at this time. So I would say that if it doesn't fit within the mission, which is sort of what Matt was suggesting, and even our legal documents outline that we're going to do a certain thing. And if we review those documents Mm. and that's not what's actually happening, then I think it's okay to Mm. make the adjustment. So that would be my thinking there. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think we have more questions from online. Yes. An online question from Derek Wilson. Um, What legal considerations uh, should we be thinking about for churches that meet in homes or via Zoom? Oh, that's so good. So the question was, what legal considerations are there for churches that meet in home or on Zoom? So I'll get started. That's great. So the first thing is I want to acknowledge that small is the new big. What we are seeing is that while there was a mega, let's plant more, let's grow bigger, and there will always be that, But the reality of the patterns that we're seeing now is smaller churches, including home churches, is very much the wave of the future in the United States. So while a home church used to sound kind of othered, it is going to, I think, become more the norm. And as that is the case, there are a number of safety precautions, I think, that we want to consider legally. When we're in a home, there's First of all, not every home, and I'm sure uh, Majed is immediately nodding his head, just because it's a house doesn't mean it can automatically be a church, right? So there may be some local requirements about what can happen in a residential area, and that may not be tambourines and drums. (laughs) It's sounding like my church. (laughs) So you have to be careful to even know whether this is properly zoned is the legal consideration for hosting a home church. So I think that's a primary consideration. The second component is often when we're talking about church and meeting, we may have people of all age groups, and that would be ideal, including children. So we do want to make sure that children can be safe in every environment, just like we would want them to be safe in a quote-unquote standard church. So those child compliance matters. I've had questions around, you know, do we hire a teenager who just looks after the kids while they're there? Like, how do we manage that? I know that it's a home church, but we still want to have the necessary components to make sure that we're operating in integrity. That's really good, Arika. The only other thing I can think of and would add is just, you know, if you are going to meet as a home church, if you're going to be a defined body, incorporating 
is still going to be something you're going to want to think about doing. It creates a legal entity that has its own protections for you uh, as individual leaders that if you're unincorporated, you don't have the benefit of. So that would be the only other thing I could think of. That's a good point. All right. More questions from our online community. Yes. When giving annual cost of living adjustments to employees of the church, do you have to offer to all employees or can you pick and choose which employees receive it? I think any number of people here just went. (laughs) Okay. So this would be my thinking. So we're talking about employees of a church. So I would presume and hope that there's an internal HR process. This would go with the policies that we talk about. So I would hope that would include things like an annual review, regular communications about an individual employee's performance. I would presume that um, if an increase is given, usually those increases are given across the board to either all employees or all employees meeting a certain standard or all employees of a certain type. So for example, you may say, we are providing an increase. We noticed that our I was going to say musicians. Musicians are never underpaid, but let's just pretend. We're noticed that our musicians are underpaid. And so, you know, we're going to give across the board, they're going to get this increase, right? So I would want to be very careful about picking and choosing because that could give the impression that certain individuals are being treated less favorably because of legally protected reasons. And so we want to avoid that. I would just add that every church needs to think about reasonable compensation as a philosophy, as a practice. You know, the IRS wants to make sure that no individuals are, as the word would be used, benefiting, inuring to the benefit of a tax-exempt organization. And so reasonable compensation policies and then the processes that are used to follow that are really, really important. And that includes doing things like annual salary surveys. We have a website called churchsalary.com that surveys churches all over the country to help set what we think are reasonable compensation packages based on role and education and experience and location. And so using those kinds of tools helps kind of set a baseline that can then be used fairly across the board. And as Erika was describing, you may do cost of living adjustments across the board. That's your prerogative. You may want to do merit-based increases, and that's your prerogative. It would make more sense in my mind, and this is not necessarily a legal idea, but merit-based increases seem more discretionary. If the person rises to the level of warranting to receive one, they should receive one. And you don't have to give everybody a merit-based increase. Cost of living increases, it would be weird in my mind that you would give it to some, but not others. And so to me, it's just more of a fairness issue. I think that's a really good distinction. When you suggest cost of living, there is a more widely associated benefit to that as opposed to merit increases. I think that's a great distinction. All right. We may be able to take one or two more questions. Let's see if anybody else is in the room who wants to have a question, I would say get to the microphone now and I'll take Samantha's question from our online audience. Our online audience has been on it with these questions. We appreciate it. This question comes from Sandy Pineda. How would you know what is the threshold amount for UBIT? So. I'm going to say a little something, but I'm not an accountant and I don't play one on TV. So 
unrelated business income tax is not necessarily about a number threshold. Sort of like when you, for the issuance of 990s, right? The IRS has said that threshold is $600. We know that there's a specific threshold. I don't think that there's a specific number around whether unrelated business income tax applies. I think it's more about the nature of that revenue in general, where it comes from, how the revenue comes in, et cetera. So distinguished from donations, in other words, that it's actually income unrelated to your exempt purpose. So I don't think it's a number as much as how the funds come in. Yeah, I think if I recall correctly, it is ambiguous with the tax code as far as how that's defined. They just say it can't become a substantial part of your exempt purpose. And so substantial has varying degrees of definition and nuance. So I think the takeaway is if you are engaging activities that generate revenue outside of what would be your exempt purpose in the tithes and offerings that you collect, it's good to seek counsel to see how that revenue implicates your tax-exempt status and how it should be treated going forward. That's great. I think we're going to refer any other questions you have to Rich since he didn't come back and join us for the Q&A. Oh, go ahead. I'm just going to give you a quick answer to that. Thank you, Cynthia. It's no problem. It's actually Form 990-T. And so it's a $1,000 threshold. And so once you reach that $1,000 of unrelated business income, you need to file a 990-T. Of course, churches don't have to file 990s normally. But if you cross that threshold and move over into unrelated business income, you now are required to file a 990. It's called a 980-T, and it's $1,000 is that threshold. And this is why we have the professionals we have. So that is, Cynthia, do you want to just tell the people who you are? Cynthia Gordon Floyd. I'm with Willing Stewart Ministries. I am a CPA and a certified fraud examiner. Mainly, we work for churches and Christian nonprofits. Thank you. Thank you so much. Woo! I love that Q&A. Thank you so much, Matt, for, uh, for being there with me on this Q&A. And I know that our online audience is probably really enjoying themselves and sad that we're about to wrap up our time online, but I'm grateful that you've been able to join us for this hybrid event. Thank you for listening. I'm happy to be your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney and creator of the Church Attorney Legal Audit System, my four-step proprietary process that helps churches and denominations assess their legal risk. Set the tone for integrity in your church and download your free copy of the Legal Audit Document Checklist using the link in the show notes below and learn more at erikacole.com. That's E-R-I-K-A-C-O-L-E.com. podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights.